From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Few U.S. cities have an office dedicated to climate change, but Denver's one of them, funded through a tax voters passed. Liz Babcock helped push for it, and now she's in charge. And she says she's listening. Neighborhoods told us they're concerned about air quality, they're concerned about heat, they're concerned about access to transportation. They're also concerned about racism and environmental injustice. I will ask Babcock about the electrification of Denver from cars to HVAC and whether hers is merely a feel-good job given the global trends feeding global warming. Climate solutions are no regret solutions because it decreases air pollution right here locally in our community. Plus, why Denver's success depends on the planes. If giving back to your community is an integral part of how you do business, make twice the impact by participating in Colorado Public Radio's Spirit of Sharing program. Your support for CPR can raise awareness for another nonprofit and its mission and may also be considered a 501c3 nonprofit contribution. Connect your business with your community through a spirit of sharing sponsorship. Start now at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Denver has a new climate boss, not a role very many U.S. cities have. And we asked Liz Babcock to meet us somewhere especially vulnerable to climate change. She chose the Sun Valley neighborhood around Broncos Stadium. We pulled up to an unremarkable warehouse. More remarkable is what's inside, or who's inside. My name is Deja Creel, and I live in Denver, Colorado. Creel is part of Mile High Youth Corps, which enlists young people to make communities more resistant to global warming and to educate folks. We were doing a project around how to recycle plastic water bottles into planters as like one means of climate action. And so it was just really awesome to watch both children and adults light up. Everyone loves plants. Everyone knows like the connection between like plants and breathing. So being able to like connect that with a way to recycle materials was pretty cool. But her role goes beyond eco-minded crafts, helping retrofit homes in this very neighborhood so families save on energy which means saving money and just maybe saving people's sanity. If you're constantly being fatigued by the heat or the extreme cold or lack of access to water or the impacts that it has on because it's so much hotter, you have to run your AC up more often. That creates more stress on households. So finding ways to bring those costs down and bring that stress level down is super important because families that have a higher income have the ability to make those adjustments on their own But if you're already using the entire allotment of your budget for the month, there isn't space without giving out something else to make a retrofit. Creel was at a keyboard as we spoke. She's learning Python, a programming language, to help make her work more data-driven. Not far from Creel's desk, in a vast warehouse, we met Liz Babcock, whose official title is Executive Director of Denver's Office of Climate Action, Sustainability, and Resiliency. Water-saving fixtures were all around us, shelves of faucets, low-flow toilets, and I asked Babcock why she chose to meet us here. Because I think the work of climate action has to engage everyone in our community. 
Young people are really feeling a lot of anxiety around climate change. And so being a part of an organization that's having a direct impact in the community gives them a sense that the solutions are here, they're possible, they can make a difference. And we are experiencing an affordability crisis in our community. And so pairing climate action and clean energy with programs that actually lower people's energy costs is really important. Ah, I see. If people's bills are lower, they might be more likely to stay in the homes because they can afford them. That's right. There's two sides to the affordability equation, income and costs. And so if we can help lower people's costs, we're doing our part. We also do a lot of work around green jobs. So that helps people get into training pathways that will get them good paying jobs with good benefits. Denver is projected to experience more extreme heat. I mean, here we are talking in October and we were both sweating as we walked into this warehouse. This past summer, in fact, broke records. And neighborhoods like this, we're in Sun Valley, experience the brunt of it. A lot of that is because of factors that make people who live here less adaptable, lower incomes, more disabilities, more challenges with language, housing, transportation, but also because of things like trees or the lack thereof. Sun Valley is in the lowest category for tree cover. So what is your plan for neighborhoods like this? We do know from the data that communities like Sun Valley have some vulnerabilities to climate change. They're more vulnerable to extreme heat, like you said, because of the lower tree canopy, but also because of social and health and demographic factors. I just want to point out there's four times more tree cover at the governor's mansion across town, just for perspective. That's right. Sun Valley has the lowest tree canopy in the city. And so what we want to do is really talk to those communities about what things would actually help them be meaningful for them. And we've done that. I'm not sure if you asked me that, I would know what the answer was. Neighborhoods told us they're concerned about air quality. They're concerned about heat. They're concerned about access to transportation. They're also concerned about racism and environmental injustice. They're concerned about safety. And they're also worried about job opportunities for youth. What did they tell you about air quality and how do you address it? Particularly in North Denver, it's a concern for folks because there are more industrial facilities located there as well as major highways. And so they want us to be addressing that through lowering emissions from the major sources of air pollution. The number one source of air pollution in Denver is transportation. So what we have to do is both move forward rapidly to electrify all of the vehicles on the road, but we also can't just keep growing the number of vehicles on the road. We really have to provide those choices to people that allow them to safely walk and bike and to take transit. Transit needs to be frequent and affordable and reliable. And so those are the strategies that we want to see move forward rapidly to address emissions from transportation. The folks raising concerns about air quality, are they the same people who can afford an electric car? So in those communities, many people are interested in purchasing electric vehicles. For some, it may be out of reach. We fund one of the vehicles in the Denver Connector service. So that's a free microtransit service offered by the city where you can call up and get a free ride. It's available right now in Montbello and in Globeville and hopefully will expand to other parts of the city. Our office pays for the electric vehicle as part of that service. Mm. 
We also have electric vehicle car share. You can use it for any errands that you might need where other transportation options aren't viable for you. And we subsidize the memberships for that. We had a wet spring. Fall is off to a dry start. And these are the conditions that in 2021 helped ignite the Marshall Fire in Boulder County. It's a reminder of how vulnerable urban and suburban neighborhoods are to climate-fueled wildfires, even in the dead of winter, Liz. With the idea of resiliency, there are a lot of places in Denver near grasslands. What is your office doing about that? So what we've started to do is look at which areas of the city might be more prone potentially to exposure to those wildfires. Like you said, there are some parts of the city that are closer to that short grass prairie. And if it ignited, it could create a larger fire that could spread. And so... So you're doing mapping right now of that? We're doing mapping of that. And we do have a map of other vulnerabilities as well. So we have a map of heat vulnerability, for example, vulnerability to extreme weather, which is really looking at economic and social factors. If if you are uninsured or underinsured, it might be difficult for you, as you said, to bounce back mm-hmm. from an extreme weather event, whether that's a hailstorm, uh, extreme wind. There has been some mapping done by the Office of Emergency Management on flooding as well. And as you probably know, there's a large project to look at restoration along the South Platte River and flood mitigation as well. So um, we have to take each one of those vulnerabilities very seriously and start looking at where in the city are we vulnerable and then what are the policies, programs, and infrastructure that's needed to help create a more resilient future for those communities. And maybe you harness the power of youth to help implement that. That's right. We Mm. are working right now with Mile High Youth Corps to help us with a lot of the work that we're doing around making each household more resilient, individually resilient to some of those extreme weather events. So you have extreme temperatures. If your house is not well insulated, if you have old equipment that is not very efficient, when you have either extreme heat or extreme cold, you're going to be paying a lot more for your utility bills than if you have a really well insulated home with new equipment that's highly efficient. You and I in this warehouse walked past an enormous pallet of insulation, roof insulation for this purpose. The city's goal is 100% renewable electricity by 2030. Do you think that goal is reachable? The state of Colorado has required Excel to get to 85 or more than 80% emissions reduction by 2030. So we're already at least 80% of the way there. Excel, obviously, the utility for Denver. That's right. And what we're doing to try to fill the gap is building community solar like we have on the roof of this building that we're in today. You perilously climbed up a ladder to demonstrate this. I did. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And so we have solar that we are building in uh, schools, rec centers, all across the city that help power municipal facilities and lower our energy costs. But we're also donating a portion of that bill credit from that power to income qualified families. That is to say you feed the grid back to some extent in benefit of people who can't afford their electricity bills. That's right. And we also have significant incentives for homeowners to put on rooftop solar as well. And so we think through incentives, through the policy work that we do, and through a lot of the infrastructure that we're building through our community solar program, we can close that gap between the 80% that Excel will get to and the 100% of our goal. 
Liz, China permitted the equivalent of about two new coal power plants per week last year. Meanwhile, it's almost a guarantee that 2023 will end as the warmest on record. Does that kind of activity make your job feel good in the face of those powerful trends? Climate solutions are no regret solutions. So I always feel like what we're doing is worthwhile because it decreases air pollution right here locally in our community. So regardless of what's happening in other places around the world on climate, what we're doing to bring on renewable energy, to be more efficient, transform our transportation system, all of those solutions are health solutions, they're quality of life solutions, they help with affordability. And so to me, there are no regret solutions regardless of what is happening in other places. I do understand that for many people, it can feel daunting when you look at the scope and scale of the problem. But I think if we continue to demonstrate leadership, it will help inspire more and more action. I almost feel like we got a glimpse into your self-talk. That is, when you feel daunted by the world, do you tell yourself, but I did things today I don't have regrets about? Yeah, this is my mission in life. I was asked at an event recently, you know, what is the reason why you do this work? Mm -hmm. And I want to be able to tell my daughter that I did everything I could to address the climate crisis. And I, I want to do that for all kids. When it comes to fighting climate change on an individual level, there are so many trade-offs. Global warming it worries me, but I own a combustion engine car outright. I don't have payments now. And I don't want the upfront costs of an electric car. Like Liz, I have to fly to California this month for a funeral, even though I know air travel is a biggie in terms of carbon. Are there places like that where your own values run up against the realities of your daily life? I would say that um, most of what I do in my daily life aligns with my values. But as you pointed out, sometimes there's big expensive changes that might have to happen in our systems to get to the outcomes that we want on climate. So I own a 1927 bungalow that doesn't have any ducting and doing electrification might be challenging for me in the near term. So I'm looking at different ways of, you know, how can I finance that? There's going to be more money coming from the IRA and it's going to get even more affordable. For me, I understand some of those challenges and that's why I think our office is really focused on people's experience. You know, I think sometimes people think things are more of a barrier than they are. People talk a lot about the price of electric vehicles, yeah, but they're actually at cost parity now with a traditional internal combustion engine vehicle. We bought a used EV. That was our first car and it was very affordable. And you can actually use the state's tax credits towards a used electric vehicle as well. You mentioned the IRA. That's the Inflation Reduction Act. Molly Cruz with CPR's climate team went to a meeting the other day in eastern Colorado, Kiowa County. It was an open house for residents to ask questions about Excel Energy's massive new transmission line project. This will allow for more wind and solar from the plains to connect to the grid. And one thing that Molly heard from folks there was concern that their communities are going to be disrupted, even ruined, to supply energy to folks in Denver. 
Elbert County rancher Brad Ray says his land is going to be directly affected by transmission lines. Well, we have no problem with the wind and the solar. Our issue is with property rights, land rights, and what, what is fair. And these people are basically running over the top of us. None of this power is for Elbert County. We do not benefit from this in any way. What would you say to someone like Brad Ray? I'd say that I um, understand his concerns, and I think that the reality for us today as a society is that we are going to be facing impacts from climate change, and so we have choices to make, and sometimes those choices will be difficult ones. We will need to build more infrastructure to support renewable energy. I think that communities in eastern Colorado and all across the country are already being affected by the climate crisis. So I think that if we are going to be successful in addressing this challenge, we have to figure out ways to work with communities to be able to say yes. And at the same time, here in Denver, what we're trying to do is make sure that we're doing our part so that we can reduce the demand for energy through energy efficiency, also building local. So we're doing a lot of local solar I think it is our responsibility to do everything that we can as a community to make sure that we're reducing any impacts of our energy footprint. And at the same time, we know that it's essential to make this transition happen. This is fascinating to me. In other words, you don't see once Denver, if Denver reaches, say, 100% renewable electricity, you don't then think, leave the lights on kids, it's fine. You know, uh, run the air conditioner as much as you'd like. You think that even at that point, crossing that threshold, we still have to be smart about use. I think that's right, because we are needing to invest a lot of money in infrastructure to make sure that we're rapidly doing the clean energy transition that we need. And the more Why make it more difficult? The more efficient we can be the less we'll have to spend on that new infrastructure and the more we can reinvest that in other areas of infrastructure, whether that's, you know, resilience to flooding or other infrastructure projects that we need. Is part of your message to a Brad Ray, yes, there are sacrifices coming, but they're probably not as great as the sacrifices as you might make if climate change becomes even worse? Do I hear you saying that? The cost of doing nothing is much greater than the cost of moving forward with the energy transition. Denver's e-bike program is a smash hit. Pretty strong signals it's one of the most successful programs like it anywhere. Does that surprise you? I think we are all a bit surprised, but I think it makes a lot of sense at the same time. Everything aligned. People, I think, were already starting to be interested in e-bikes when we launched the program. Mm. But then we saw a huge spike in gas prices that summer. And there had only been maybe one or two other programs nationally that had existed before ours. So we were caught a little bit off guard by how much interest. But if you really look at what people are trying to do, people want to be out in the community, experiencing their neighborhoods, having fun, talking with their neighbors, being able to explore the city free from a car. And e-bikes are just a joy to ride. I've had an e-bike. I got mine back in 2018. I've had it for a long time. And I remember the first time I took my daughter on it and she was sitting in the back in a little kid's seat and she just giggled and laughed and thought it was the best thing ever. I don't have an e-bike, but I sound like that on my normal bike, to be (laughs) honest. Do, Do you think that there is any sense 
given the e-bike program's success, that it will kind of siphon from other projects? That's a great question. We definitely try to be responsive to what the community wants. And at the same time, we also are balancing that with the key outcomes from the fund, which is to eliminate greenhouse gas emissions and air pollution. I will say the e-bike program is one of our best performing programs when it comes to greenhouse gas emissions reduced per dollar spent. It's very, very effective. But it's also not as costly as some other infrastructure projects. So it's actually not a very large slice of the pie when it comes to the overall budget. Mm -hmm. The e-bike program is set up to give the biggest rebates to lower income applicants. Uh, The latest data show about half the vouchers have gone to them. Is that 50-50 mix the right mix? Our fund has a um, 50% goal for equity, race, and social justice. So what we have seen, which is really interesting from the early data, is that the income-qualified folks actually ride those e-bikes more. So we're getting more greenhouse gas benefit from that uh, user than from folks who got the standard rebate. And by the way, that 50-50 split actually means the bulk of dollars are going towards folks with low incomes. But why do you think their use might be different? One of the questions we ask in the survey is, you know, how many car trips per week are you replacing with the e-bike? So it's a cost savings, right? You're not having to pay, if they do have a gas vehicle, you're not having to pay for gas. Liz, thank you for joining me and, you know, meeting me around low flow toilets. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Liz Babcock leads climate action, sustainability, and resiliency for Denver. That's a new role for her, although she's been with the office for more than a decade. We'll have links to the money-saving programs she mentioned at CPR.org. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. When it comes to elections, an off-year doesn't mean Colorado voters get to take the year off. Ballots for the fall election are out, and CPR.org is your place for answers to your questions about voting, election security, and this year's two statewide questions. That's all at CPR.org. If you live in Denver, denverite.com has you covered for local elections. And there's a voter guide for Southern Colorado at krcc.org. Happy voting! It's been nearly a year since five people were killed and 17 others injured in the attack at an LGBTQ club in Colorado Springs. Ashton Gamblin was one of those hurt. She worked the front door at Club Q. She was shot nine times, mostly in her arms and chest. A caution, her story includes graphic descriptions of gun violence and its impacts. Like, we were just having fun with our lives and didn't really care. My husband was deployed and I was in the middle of trying to set up a welcome home party and things like that. Yeah, he was a week away actually from coming home. One of our bar patrons, Dee, she actually called him in the parking lot. As soon as she saw me, I just looked at her because she put her hand on my head and then she pulled it back when there was blood on it. And I just looked at her and said, that's not my blood. Daniel's dead. I need you to call my husband. 
And she stood there while I was sitting on the parking block after they pulled me out. And she called my husband repeatedly. We inadvertently left him two voicemails. Um, one of them is me screaming his name because I thought he answered. When he finally figured out which hospital I was at, because he kept calling hospital, 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 hospital. He spoke to a nurse who told him, yes, I'm staring at her. No, you can't talk to her, and hung up on him. And when I finally was able to talk to him, all I said was, baby, come home, and started crying. And it was the first time I cried. I never passed out. Never passed out. I remember all of that, unfortunately. The ambulance ride, I wish I could forget, or that I was unconscious for that, solely because, you know, I rode with my shooter. I was in the ambulance with two other victims, and they pulled one of them out, separated the husband and the wife. They pulled one of them out and put him in. They tried to cut my rings off, and I specifically remember telling them not to cut my rings off because they were my great-grandmothers. Long, long time ago, my family used to own a jewelry store in New York, and that's where my grandfather had gotten the rings, and they were from Italy. And I just remember telling them, don't, don't cut the rings off. And they said, okay, well, we'll try. They put them in a biohazard bag, never saw them again. Uh, my husband's truck keys also just, they were in my hoodie pocket, and I know because like it had my pepper spray on there, and I always kept my pepper spray on me at the club. My taser was in my bag, but I always kept my pepper spray in reach, so it was in my hoodie pocket, which had my keys attached to it. We never saw either of those again. Um, actually, I got two pieces of jewelry which were an earring and a belly ring in one bra cup. Like, not a strap, not nothing, the bra cup. And, oh, my walkie wire. There's some days, like, I actually have a body confidence. And it's usually on those days that somebody will say something about my scars or I will see somebody staring. And for the most part, it actually usually turns into a conversation. And they ask, you know, what happened? I'm like, that's cool, I got shot at Club Q, and they're like, hmm. There's that look of, I shouldn't have asked. Because, <laughs> I mean, I will be blunt with them about it. Like, I don't care if you're gonna stare, you're gonna get told what happened. Because don't think I'm not, I wasn't a confident person before. Struggled with body confidence. And my scars, can't hide them. TRICARE is not paying for anything. In normal people terms, I didn't shoot myself. In TRICARE terms, a third party caused my injuries and the government wants to know where they can recover their funds. And if they can't recover their funds, then I am responsible for paying them. Yeah, I actually still have the letters somewhere. Everything I do is just putting out fires. Fire after fire. Close the damn club. I don't care what you do with it. Level it. 
Leave it the hell alone. You opened the bathhouse the day of our friend's funeral. Men were getting laid in a bathhouse while the rest of us were mourning at a funeral. Oh, there was no damage to it. I don't care that there's no damage. You opened it up while we're putting our friend in the ground that was killed feet away because Daniel was at the front door. I want to scream and yell and fix things. And I don't know how much fixing I'm doing. When I get told to, like, go back to normal, first of all, I'm scared of normal. I want to say it was right around the five-month mark. I was just coming home from a therapy appointment, and I just kind of looked out the car window, saw the mountains, and looked at my husband, and I was like, I don't want to be here. Because that was like the first time in five months that I had time to think for myself. You know, doctor's appointments finally started slowing down, not as many events and fundraising, and we had an opportunity to leave. My husband had orders to leave, and we decided that we were gonna stay here for the trial, so we went through the process of getting them canceled. We'll probably be here another two to three years. I could have left in October. Um, it was maybe a week or two before they announced plea, and I had a conversation, and when they told me about it, and I said, you guys realize what you just did to me? I had these canceled because I thought we were going to trial. And not only did you delay it, but you didn't tell us why. And then you finally tell us, you know, there's a plea deal. And I just had everything changed so I could be here for a trial that's non-existent. One, I wanted him to face what he's done. But two, for me, I personally would have loved to have just seen evidence, seen something to grasp a reason as to why. Ashton Gamblin, a survivor of the Club Q shooting. She talked about riding in the same ambulance as the shooter. KRCC asked the Colorado Springs police and fire departments about that. They said in a mass casualty event, it's their priority to get injured people to treatment as quickly as possible with the resources available. We also reached out to TRICARE about her medical bills, but haven't heard back. As for the club, the owner recently announced the venue will reopen soon at a new location under a new name with a team of survivors to keep the business going. Ashton's story was produced by KRCC's Abigail Beckman as the year mark approaches November 19th. You can read all four profiles in our series now at krcc.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Colorado's politics have shifted increasingly blue in recent years, and that can have some in the state's reddest parts questioning what the future means for them. It sounds like my wife, she wants to move out of Colorado so fast she can't even pack her bags fast. <laughs> I say, well, we can't do nothing yet. We go to the most conservative district in the state to answer our latest Colorado Wonders question at CPR.org. Supported in part by the Colorado Health Foundation. 
Voters will decide two statewide ballot measures this election, and they'll weigh in on any number of local issues and races as well. Aurora is choosing a mayor. Incumbent Mike Kaufman wants a second term. Juan Marcano and Jeff Sanford hope to unseat him. The mayoral race in Colorado's third largest city is nonpartisan, but hardly apolitical. Mike Kaufman has a long history in politics, including as a Republican member of Congress. City Council member Juan Marcano says he's proud to be a Democrat, while Jeff Sanford has emphasized his lack of affiliation. We ask them to outline the top issues facing Aurora. In alphabetical order, here's Mike Kaufman first. As your mayor, I focused on the issues of crime, bringing down the crime rate, uh, making sure that we have a fully staffed police department uh, with all of the resources uh, necessary to reduce crime and the appropriate training uh, and pay and benefits to retain the uh, most professional law enforcement uh, uh, staff. Um, Worked on the issue of homelessness and continue to do so uh, in terms of um, passing a camping ban and, and, and having the make sure that we have the appropriate services for uh, serving our homeless population and um, uh, working on affordable housing to make sure that uh, particularly Aurora's um, families uh, who might be struggling with housing affordability um, have uh, adequate choices uh, before them. Uh, and so focused on expanding uh, the inventory of affordable housing in our city. My three priorities are continue to doing what I'm doing, continue uh, to work to reduce the crime rate, I believe that everybody in our city has the right to live without fear of being a victim of crime, work to um, get options for our unsheltered homeless besides being on the street, uh, and then um, working to expand affordable housing uh, and led the effort to put Aurora under Proposition 123, where we're going to be committed to expanding our inventory of affordable housing by 3% year over year. Aurora's Mayor Mike Kaufman, who wants to stay on the job, Next on the city's most pressing issues is Juan Marcano. My top three priorities for the city are going to be public safety, housing, and homelessness. Uh, and on public safety, I, you know, I talk to folks about addressing the root causes um, of a lot of our public safety concerns. Um, so, because you know, this whole like strong on crime or tough on crime thing, it's a really good slogan, but it's really meaningless um, and it's ineffective policy. Uh, you know, we actually have mandatory minimum sentences now for like retail theft, for example. And retail theft continues to rise in Aurora. Um, you know, we have uh, just uh, basically doubled down on stiffer penalties and less leniency, but it's not actually making an impact on our crime rates. Uh, what we need to actually do is address the root causes. And a lot of this comes down to, you know, um, socioeconomic issues uh, in, you know, certain communities and in households even, where, you know, folks don't have stable housing. They don't have enough money at the end of the month to make ends meet. Um, some of folks are dealing with a lot of trauma. Some folks uh, are just, you know, have fallen into bad social circles uh, and need a way to, uh, to break with those. Um, with my own life, you know, I, I have a very similar experience like that. Like there were people who were threatening to jump me into a gang when I was in middle school. Right. Um, but it was through, you know, the change in our conditions uh, with my family that we were able to get away from those folks. Um, and, you know, I had a different friend group um, that I basically made through sports and through, um, an orchestra and, you know, just pursuing other hobbies, right? So we need to provide uh, more resources for our youth to have, um, you know, opportunities, regardless of their income, to build that positive social capital. Um, so I'm a big believer in a community schools model 
um, in partnership with the Royal Public Schools and Cherry Creek Public Schools um, to, you know, serve our most at-risk uh, parts of our community um, so that we can kind of break these cycles of uh, poverty and, you know, higher crime rates. Because when, when you look at our crime map, you know, our hotspots throughout the city of Aurora, it is the same map as our socioeconomic vulnerability index uh, from our emergency management plan. And it's also the same as our child opportunity deficit um, for the uh, city of Aurora. So, um, you know, we need to make uh, proactive strategic investments um, to address those shortfalls so that we can actually make our city a safer place. Um, in terms of housing and homelessness, you know, some of these things will run together a bit because really what I'm trying to do is address the social determinants of health, but I'm trying to break it down in a way that doesn't, like, it's not overwhelming and that folks can kind of grok. With uh, regards to housing, you know, having a, having stable quality housing um, is just foundational to success, period. Um, without a home, you, you can't really get anything else done. And it is, you know, I'll tell you just in my own experience, my wife and I, uh, we earn more than the median income in Aurora, but we still can't afford a single home here. So we're stuck renting. And uh, there are a lot of people who are in that same boat. We have a lot of folks who are uh, now multi-generational <laughs> renters. So we need to invest a lot more in our Housing and Community Services Department. It's currently about 2% of our general fund. I would like to, at the very least, triple that so that we're able to more aggressively uh, provide gap financing for nonprofit developers to make their projects pencil out, so that we're able to more aggressively land bank, which will help tremendously uh, with the Aurora Housing Authority and other developers um, in the city to build, you know, mixed income and mixed use housing. And, and I also like to have us uh, really explore what it would look like to create a social housing program uh, over the next few years in the city of Aurora so that we can ensure we have a steady supply of affordable, high quality housing uh, coming online. Then, of course, on homelessness, um, you know, that ties into, you know, the amount of housing that we have uh, and the price points uh, because, you know, this narrative that it's all about drugs and alcohol, it's, that is just a really, it's a cop-out, quite frankly, for uh, public policymakers to not have to address this much more complicated issue. I think with permanent supportive housing and wraparound services, we'll be able to get folks off the street. Uh, with housing affordability, we'll be able to assure that people keep their housing. Um, and then by, you know, addressing a lot of the root causes of public safety issues, I think we'll um, set folks up for success, especially our youth up for success in the long term. So we'll have less of the, of the uh, other two issues, I think, in the, into the future. Juan Marcano is running for Aurora mayor. And now Jeff Sanford on what the city faces. First, we need a master plan that encompasses economic development, um, budget priorities, high-level projects, um, employee retention, and, and to get back to why folks want to work in Aurora for the city government, I, I don't think we have that. There hasn't been a, a citywide survey for employees nor for the constituents since 2018. Um, a comprehensive master plan, which, which to me includes, like I said, economic development, um, major infrastructure projects, growth in not only emergency services or public safety, but for parks, recreation, and open space. I, I think the parks, recreation, open space ha has been put on the back burner as well as um, several of our key offices dealing with unhoused folks or homeless or, or whatever it's being called now because it, it seems the names have changed and and key personnel are shuffled. Why are our water rates going to go up 5 or 7% next year? And, and what are we spending our money on? 
Um, one perfect example is, I forget exactly when the city council voted on it, but there was a sole source contract issued to a company out of Texas for the new SEAM building that's at the very eastern border of Aurora for $24,000 a month. This is not a public-facing building, and it's brand new. They just accepted it, and they're spending $24,000 a month for custodial services. But on the flip side, they're doing a workforce study to replace the public defender's office and go contract. If we would invest more into folks that want to work for the city of Aurora, because I know um, our reputation and our core values suit their needs, you just can't buy good employees. You, you need to have folks that want to come to work for the city of Aurora because we have a vision and a reputation um, that far exceeds our metro neighbors. Jeff Sanford, he's one of three candidates vying to be the next mayor of Aurora. We also asked them what the city should do to address youth violence. And we'll go in reverse order this time, starting with Jeff Sanford. My number one priority is environmental and sustainability issues for the city moving forward. You know, that's not just trees and grass and, you know, That is sustainability, so we have a 20-year plan, a 5-year plan, a 2-year plan, a 1-year plan going forward so that we can show the country, especially the state, that we know what direction we're going towards. Without a master plan, an economic development plan, we don't have that. So directly to your question... Why are we spending less than 1% of our budget on parks, recreation, open space, increasing hours, and investing in avenues for our youth? And, and to me, our youth is 30 and below. If you can't go to your rec center because the hours are limited, or you can't go to a park because you feel unsafe because the lighting is, is less than it should be, or we don't have enough patrols, that is contributing to a lack of belonging for the community. Everybody. We're spending 31% of our budget on law enforcement to include the the latest budget. Actually, it was in August. $300,000 for radar guns. Do you know how far $300,000 would go towards our rec centers hiring full-time staff as opposed to spending millions of dollars on consultants and contractors to tell us how we can get more money from the citizens of Aurora to support their rec centers. That's backwards. We need to invest in our parks, recreation, open space for diversion and outlets for folks to go to. That again is Jeff Sanford, who's running for mayor of Aurora. Now, Juan Marcano on reducing youth violence. We need to, frankly, uh, go out and talk to the kids themselves, to the youth themselves, and to the parents. Because this is a complicated issue, right? Like, some of this just blows my mind. Because I, I keep telling myself, I'm not that old, right? But, like, I'm 37. I just turned 37. And I remember when I was in high school, like, you know, when there were, if there were issues with bullying and stuff in junior high, you either talked about it or you fought it out, right? Like, and, you know, I've been in three fights in my life. 
all of them were actually in defense of a friend of mine or friends of mine who were getting picked on for either like, you know, being fat or being gay or, you know, being Latino in some cases. But like things kind of like de-escalated after that point, right? Because folks would be held accountable, uh, there'd be mediation and then things would move on. These days, it's nonstop because of social media. Like social media is such a highly utilized tool for our youth and for adults as well. But unfortunately, in uh, with regards to our youth, one of the things that I've you know, seen and have knowledge of, because I also am friends with a lot of teachers and, you know, parents of younger children, um, it's out of control. Like, the bullying doesn't stop anymore. Um, it's it's nonstop. Um, people getting together in, like, social media groups and, that, you know, tell lies or just really go after each other. And that's part of what escalates a lot of this. To it. And unfortunately, sometimes it results in, you know, shots fired in our parks or in our high schools. So I think that there's um, more partnerships that we need to pursue with our school districts to help kids, you know, deal with social uh, and emotional intelligence uh, and, frankly, mental health supports, because this is it's brutal. Uh, and, you know, one of the things I'd like to see us do is actually work together uh, as with council and our school districts and mental health providers here, especially mental health providers of color, um, to uh, you know, that are culturally competent and, and understand the immigrant experience to, you know, get a dedicated funding source for mental health supports for our uh, community. Uh, you know, focus on our youth, but of course, open to all uh, comers. Juan Marcano. And finally, the incumbent in the Aurora mayor's race, Mike Kaufman, on curbing youth violence. Well, I think uh, I'm in conversations with uh, the superintendent, Michael Giles, from um, the Aurora Public Schools, about how the city can better partner with the school district in terms of reducing uh, uh, youth violence, uh, and particularly youth violence prevention. And so, They've done a, the city of Aurora has done a tremendous job for at the K through five level in terms of providing after school programs during the school year and during, and as well as during the summer. Um, we are looking at partnering with the um, Aurora Public Schools and to some extent with Cherry Schools to um, make sure that we have programs in place to help those from uh, going down the wrong path in, in the six through 12 space uh, for older students. Mike Kaufman, who's running for re-election as Aurora's mayor. We also heard from Juan Marcano and Jeff Sanford, who want to replace him. Our thanks to Denverites Rebecca Tauber for that audio. Read about the candidates' backgrounds, as well as their positions on housing and affordability and public safety at denverite.com. Ballots for the November election must be turned in by next Tuesday evening. She's considered this country's first prima ballerina. Maria Tallchief is now featured on the U.S. Quarter. Tallchief is from the Osage Nation in Oklahoma, but she got her start as a dancer in Colorado as a little girl. Here's CPR's Elaine Tassie. In a video of Maria Tallchief dancing for President Kennedy in the 1960s, her limbs are strong and long, her posture proud, just as she looks on the back of the new quarter. She talks about her passion for ballet in an interview recorded after she retired. This is what I'm going to do. And you know why? Because 
It's pure magic when it's right. Tall Chief's coin came out last week. She's one of 20 women from different fields and different ethnicities who are featured on quarters as part of a program run by the U.S. Mint. Eleanor Roosevelt, Celia Cruz, and Maya Angelou are also featured. Val Redhorse is the director of a documentary about another woman selected to be on the coin, Wilma Mankiller, the first female leader of the Cherokee people. Red Horse used to dance and perform, and she says she was inspired by Tall Chief. When I think that Maria Tall Chief achieved the status of, of really being considered America's first uh, prima ballerina, that is a huge achievement. According to her autobiography, Tall Chief began dancing as a three-year-old in the basement of the Broadmoor Hotel in Colorado Springs, where her family spent summers. In the decades that followed, she danced worldwide, even in Russia, where she was asked to call herself Tall Chiva, which she refused to do. In 2013, she died. Braxton Red Eagle, head of language with the Osage Nation, says Tall Chief's name is spelled both in English and the traditional Osage way on the coin. Maria Tall Chief's Osage name was Wagle Lompa. That means two standards. And the standard is a reference to a arched staff. The tribe planned a special celebration in Oklahoma. Part of the celebration featured dancing by young girls about the age Tall Chief was when she learned ballet in Colorado Springs almost 100 years ago. I'm Elaine Tassie, CPR News. That is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to our Corps de Ballet. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Tom Hess. Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum. Pedro Lumbraño. Shane Rumsey. Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. And I'm Ryan Warner, here with CPR News and KRCC.